God, as we gather uh, this morning as your people, Lord, we acknowledge that this gathering is unlike any other gathering that we've had throughout the week. Or this gathering is different than a family gathering, it's different than um, a work gathering, it's different than a sports gathering. Lord, this gathering of, of your people is unique because you are with us by your Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray as we do gather and as we hear from your word, Lord, would you give us an openness today? I pray, God, that you would speak to us. God, we are hungry for your word. Lord, we want to know, Lord, what it looks like to follow after you. And Lord, would you use this passage to do just that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was an early church father uh, named Polycarp. Uh, He lived in the second century. He was actually discipled by the apostle John. And he became a very important leader in the early church, especially as more and more of these apostles uh, were dying. Well, during this time in the second century, there were mass persecutions uh, towards Christians. There were uh, many martyrs uh, that took place during that time. And the Roman authorities were looking for Polycarp. He, was, again, was one of the leaders. They found him and they arrested him. And they were going to put him to death, but they told him, Look, all you have to do is curse Christ and we will release you. All you have to say is that Caesar is Lord. That's all you need to do and we'll let you go. But he responded with these words. He said, 86 years I have served him and he had never done me wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? If you imagine for a moment that I would do that, then I think you pretend that you don't know who I am. Hear it plainly. I am a Christian. The Roman authorities were very agitated at this response, so they responded and said, we will burn you alive. And then he said this, and these are his last words. He said, you threaten fire that burns for an hour, and it is over. But the judgment on the, on the ungodly is a fire that lasts forever. How's that for last words? I think it's safe to say that Polycarp both lived well and he died well. And there are countless examples of this all throughout the ages of followers of Jesus who live well and they die well. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that's what you want. You want to be faithful to the Lord Jesus as you live your life. And you also want to die well no matter what, even in the face of persecution. My question for us as we begin today is, how do you know that you will? Like it's one thing to want to live well and die well. It's another thing to think that you will, but how can you have confidence that you will both live well and die well in the face of perhaps persecution, that you won't fall away? Like that that question and really that concern uh, was heavy on Peter's heart. It's part of the reason why he's writing 2 Peter. These are Peter's last words, and he's writing to these believers who had experienced persecution outside of the church, but who are now experiencing persecution inside the church or a type of hardship with these false teachings. And as he has spelled out, as we've seen these first 11 verses, he's given us a picture of what grace-fueled effort looks like in pursuing godliness. Peter wants them to confirm their salvation, verse 10. And so he picks that back up in verses 12 through 15, and he shows us three keys to know how 
to confirm your salvation, how to live well and to die well. Okay, so three keys from verses 12 through 15 this morning. Here's the first key, is that Peter wants us to establish deep roots in the, tr- in the truth. Look with me at verse 12. He says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, as qualities from verses five through seven, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Such an interesting sentence. Like Peter is saying, you know the truth, you're established in the truth, but I also need to remind you to be established in the truth. So which one is it? Are they established in the truth or do they need to be reminded of the truth? Well, it's yes, it's both. Like Peter is saying, you are established, so do not move. And the way that I'm gonna help you not move away from the truth is by reminding you of the truth that you already know, that this is the, the way that, they, that he wants them to become firmly rooted by going deeper into the truth. Now, this word establish is an important word. You see this word really all throughout the New Testament. It's a word that means to be steady, to be stabilized, means to be strengthened. This is actually the same word that Jesus uh, used in Luke chapter 22 as he was predicting both Peter's threefold denial, but also uh, he used that word as he's uh, engaging with Peter in that same conversation, explaining his future role in the early church after Peter repented. Uh, Jesus said this in Luke 22, verse 32. He said, and when you, Peter, have turned again, strengthen or establish your brothers. It's the same word. And so Peter is doing just that in this letter. He's trying to strengthen and establish uh, the brothers, the saints. Peter uses this word all throughout 2 Peter. Uh, In chapter 2, in contrast to the false teachers, he says in verse 14, talking about the false teachers, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. Then in chapter 3, verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability. Peter is leveraging this word. He's using this concept to help believers avoid verse 9 of falling away from God. And again, it's a word that's used throughout the New Testament, but during this time, it's actually a word that's borrowed from architecture. This is the word that they would use in, in kind of making sure that the foundation was strong, that it was established well. So notice the connection. Peter is saying, as you build yourself up spiritually, make sure you're building the right way. Make sure you have a strong foundation. I came across this insight from a structural engineer who's a believer who, in light of this verse, said this, said that most people readily think of stability and can quickly relate that to the need of securing solid foundations that heavier loads require deeper, more solid foundations, lest they become unstable. This ensures a building doesn't blow over in a hurricane or shake loose during an earthquake. 
Okay, so pick up on the application here. This is what Peter is saying to us, that we need to make sure that we're digging deeper in our foundation to ensure we don't fall over or fall away from God when the blowing winds of false teaching from the East come or the temptations of immorality come from the West, that we have these pressures from the world, from our flesh, from temptations that want to shake us to the core. But Peter is saying, no, 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 establish yourself by going deeper into the truth. Don't focus on building up, go deeper. And what I found so interesting is that Peter's writing to mature Christians here. He's not writing to to, to new believers in the faith. These aren't immature Christians. They have remained faithful in the midst of persecution And yet he's telling them to make sure that you're established, right? So this isn't like basic Christianity 101. This is maybe for us today. This is actually a challenge that's especially for mature Christians who are tempted to lay a a thin foundation and then move on to more important matters of the faith. Peter wants us to mature and grow in godliness by making sure we have established a sure foundation. Now, my question for us is how do we do this, right? How do we establish ourselves in the truth? Well, of course, we can just read verses one through 11, right? That's what Peter's been saying. But throughout the New Testament, we have other examples that God uses to establish his people. Let me give you a couple of examples here. God uses, number one, our obedience to establish us in the truth. Uh, Deuteronomy 28 verse 9 says, the Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. So you establish yourself through obedience. Number two, God uses suffering in our lives. First Peter 5 10, but may the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. He uses trials and hardship. Number three, God uses other believers. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 2. uh, And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's coworker in the gospel of Christ, to do what? To establish and exhort you in your faith. God uses Jesus. Colossians 2 says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. God uses the gospel. Romans 16, now to him who's able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Like I was tracing this concept of how does God establish his people all throughout the Bible? And guess what I did not find? I did not find any verse that alluded to the fact that God established his people through new truth, new revelation, new new insight, new doctrine. No, all of these examples sound like the basics, like the gospel, Jesus, other believers, obedience, suffering. Like those are the basics of Christianity that God primarily uses to establish us. And I I think that's so encouraging to hear because like in God's grace, he doesn't just say establish yourself and figure it out. No, he says, establish yourself and use 
all of these various means that I have provided for you. And that's how good and kind God is. He doesn't say, figure it out on your own. No, I'm going to be actively at work in your life in order to help you establish yourself in the truth. But here's the question. Are you and I, are we diligently and thoroughly dedicating ourselves to become as established in the truth as possible? Like we have all these mechanisms. Are we taking advantage of those and diligently committing ourselves to being established to the point where you're the type of Christian that's not easily shaken? You're the type of Christian that's not easily rattled. Like when trials come, it doesn't cripple you. Like when temptations come, they don't move you. That no matter what happens in culture, no matter what your coworker says, no matter what your neighbors say, you will not compromise. Does that describe you this morning? Or are you the type of Christian where when temptation comes, you give in? When hardship comes, you stop turning to God. When unbelievers are around you, you become quiet in the faith. Does that describe you? Uh, Are you the kind of person where you have maybe uh, thin roots, (laughs) that you're not established in the truth, where you're easily blown to and fro by the cultural winds, by the temptations that you face? Look, if that's you today, if if you feel like you're not steady, you're not established in the truth, I want to encourage you as well this morning, that God's not giving up on you. He's not done with you. He's he's not going to let you just kind of hang out there and be blown away by the cultural winds. He wants to establish you. Philippians 1.6 says God will complete that which he began in you. And guess what? He's gonna use one of these examples that I just listed to do just that. He's gonna grow your obedience. He's gonna use suffering. He's gonna use the gospel. He's gonna use other believers. He's gonna use Jesus to establish you in the truth. Here's the hard part about that. That won't happen just magically. That won't happen just out of thin air. That's why Peter uses the word, therefore, in verse 12. That Peter is using that word to kind of connect what he has said in verses 1 through 11 with our passage this morning. That in short, he's saying, look, the way you become established in the truth is by doing 1 through 11 by making every effort, by putting forth diligence and and, and pursuing godliness. That's the way that you become established in the faith and God Almighty is actively at work in your life. Look, is that true of you today? I'm not asking you, I wanna be clear with this, I'm not asking you if you're spending time with God in his word every day. I'm not asking that question. I want to ask maybe a nuanced question of that, and it's this. Is your regular practice, your regular time with God in his word, does it have any effect on your life at all? So again, I'm not asking, are you spending time with God? But I'm asking you, are you experiencing real fruit because of your time with God every day? Like because You believe the Bible is alive and it's active and it's living and it's powerful and it's able to to change you and convict you and establish you because you believe the living God wrote this book. And so when you read it and you saturate your heart in it, 
It does change you. It does convict you. Or do you read it and you're not changed? You're not convicted. You're not established and, and strengthened in it. And if that's you, you're reading it incorrectly. Like, like we need to read this, but this is unlike any other book that we have. We need to read the Bible as if the living God was right there next to us, who's whispering these words into our hearts. And do you read the Bible that way? Because you spend time with him and you, and you read these words, it's God who is speaking to you right there in that moment. Look, maybe we need to back up a moment. Maybe I just need to ask the question, are, are you reading the Bible at all? And look, I'm not asking this in a judgmental way, but I'm wondering do you go Sunday to Sunday with very little time in the word? As if this is optional. And maybe that's the answer why some of us don't feel established in the truth. And look, I, I just don't know how some of us do it. Again, I'm not being judgmental. I'm just, I'm just astounded that some of us call ourselves Christians and we say, yeah, th this is optional every day. If I get around to it, I'll, I'll study it. If I have leftover energy, I'll read it. But for the most part, I'm just gonna go through the day and, and try to, to kind of go through life with all the temptations we face, all the things that our flesh are pulling us towards, all the pressure from this world and, and try to make it. That's not a very good strategy. Something will give. And I just, I don't know how you do it. Look, I, I say that because I know my own heart. I know my own life. I know the things that I struggle with. I know the sin that would be running rampant in my life if I didn't on a regular basis come to God and, and lay my heart bare before him and say, God, search me. God, convict me. God, change me. God, challenge me. Reveal the sin that's hiding in my heart. Reveal my pride. Reveal my self-sufficiency. God, make me more like Jesus. I need that because I know what's in my life. That, that's why I come to the word. I don't come to the word because I'm this professional Christian and I get paid to do this. I come to the word because I am in tune with my neediness. I'm in tune with how much I'm in desperate need of God to speak to me and change me because I know where I'd be without it. And so this is the way that, this is the way we become established in the truth, this has to be a non-negotiable. This has to be what you get up and you can't wait to sink your teeth into. You will not become established unless that is your relationship with the word of God. You will not live well and you will surely not die well unless this is your everything. That's the first key. Establish ourselves deeply in the roots of God's word, in his truth. Secondly, though, Peter, I think, shows us to remember the right things. Remember the right things. I, I love this. There is a threefold call to remember in these four verses alone. Uh, verse 12, he says, I intend always to remind you. Verse 13, I'm stirring you up by way of reminder. Verse 15, you may be able to recall 
these things. Remember, remember, remember. It, it sounds so simple, doesn't it? I don't know if you remember the, the poster that was really popular a few years ago. It was titled, All I Really Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. You remember this? It was several years ago. But it had all these lists of things underneath that, such as share everything, play fair, don't hit people, put things back where I found them, clean up my own mess, don't, t- don't take things out that aren't mine, say I'm sorry when I hurt somebody, wash my hands before I eat, flush, that's a good word, <laughs> warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Take a nap in the afternoon, and on and on. It lists all these things. But I thought about that because the message behind that poster that was really popular was that the world would improve if adults would remember and recall and, and kind of go back to the, the basic rules they learned when they were children, right? To adhere to them, to, to bring to mind those things. It'd be a better place. I think Peter is saying something very similar in this passage. I think Peter is wanting to help us recall and remember the truth that we already know. In fact, this phrase, to stir up in verse 13, it's a fascinating phrase. It literally means to shake somebody awake who is sleeping. It's kind of an interesting kind of imagery where Peter, spiritually speaking, is writing to a group of people where perhaps they're just spiritually sleepwalking or they have fallen asleep spiritually. He's trying to wake them up spiritually by doing what? By showing them new truth and new doctrine, new revelations? No, by reminding them of truth that they already know. That's so interesting to me. But the goal here, what what Peter is saying to remember, recall, it's not to recall fond memories. It's not to go down memory lane, kind of sit around and talk about the good old times, talk about the past, get all nostalgic. No, he's using this idea of recalling and remembering that involves meditating. It involves soaking in these truths that you already know so that you become anchored in them. His idea of remembering is to dwell on them, to ruminate in these truths so that you press them deeper into your hearts. So you tether your heart to the truth. And so for Peter, it it appears that memory becomes the instrument for morality, that remembering is this, it's this tool for spiritual growth. Again, he uses three different times in these four verses. Now, why do we need this? Why do we need this command to remember? It's because we are fickle and forgetful people, and we're surrounded by distractions, on a daily basis, almost a moment-to-moment basis, right? We live in a culture that values future and forward thinking and tends to neglect what I would consider old truth, right? We want to go on to the next thing, right? It's kind of how we've trained our brains, like social media, you know, we want to get that next dopamine hit, right? Or as we're kind of flipping through the television, like we, we quickly move on with our pace and we don't sit and recall and remember truth that we already know. The result is that we confuse familiarity with mastery. We think, oh yeah, I've heard that before, and we automatically equate that with, therefore I'm living it out in its fullness. 
right? So that we tend to, to forget the things that we should remember and we remember the things that we should forget. And so it's no surprise that when it comes to the Bible, God doesn't leave our memory to chance. And what I mean by that is that the Bible commands us to remember, to bring to mind, to recall over 200 times throughout the Bible. That's a lot of times that God is exhorting us, recall, remember, bring to mind these truths. We need it because we are forgetful and fickle people. Check out this quote by um, David Paulson. He says that we are simple people. You can't remember 10 things at once. Invariably, if you could remember just one true thing in the moment of trial, you'd be different. Bible verses aren't magic, but God's words are revelations of God from God for our redemption. And when you actually remember God, you do not sin. The only way we ever sin is by suppressing God, by forgetting, by tuning out his voice, switching channels and listening to other voices. But when you actually remember, you actually change. In fact, remembering is the first change. I think that's what Peter's getting at here. Now to go back to this idea of stirring up, to, to kind of wake us from spiritually sleeping, remembering is kind of the alarm clock, kind of wakes us up so that we can follow God in obedience. As C.S. Lewis, who once said that people need to be reminded more than they need to be instructed. I found that so challenging. I was thinking about that, and I think that's so right. Like more often than not, when we approach the Bible, when we gather on Sundays, what you and I need more than anything is not to be told something brand new or something that we've never heard before, but what you and I need is to be remembering truth that we already know, but we're not fully living out. And I think that's true because we're so often like, like children, spiritually speaking. And parents, you know what I mean by that. Uh, how many times do you have to tell your kids, um, kids, how many times have I told you, right? Our kids tend to forget. They confuse familiarity with mastery. And this is so fascinating to me because Peter is essentially on his deathbed as he's writing. Uh, Peter knows that his time is short. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, Peter knows this is kind of his last words, his final words, and as he's writing to them, he doesn't give them new doctrine, doesn't give them new revelation, new insights. He gives them truth that they already know but was leaking from their hearts. This is a needed mindset, mind, mindset shift for many of us where we think the only way to grow, the only way to maturity is by learning something new. New insights, new doctrine, new revelations, and we can become quickly knowledge junkies. Just give me new facts, new, new knowledge. New, new th and of course, as you go through the Christian life, you will learn new things. But more often than not, as we engage in different trials and hardships, as we face various temptations, what we need is not anything new, but it's things that we already know to press them deeper into our hearts. Let me give you an application point of this. If you don't regularly do this, if you're not cultivating this discipline of remembering truth, I wanna challenge you to do one thing. I want you to take just 15 minutes a week, 15 minutes a week, and I want you just to find a quiet space, and I want you to interact with the Lord by asking three questions. 
Number one, what did God teach me this last week? What did God show me this last week? Secondly, what has God been teaching me during this season of my life? Or maybe over this last month, what has he been teaching me? And then thirdly, what has God been teaching me over this last year? Okay, so week, season, year. And just to kind of write that down, pray about it, and just sit there and, and try to strengthen that muscle, that spiritual muscle of remembering, re- recalling. And that's a challenge because I think when we approach the word, when we approach God, we want something new. We, we think, oh, how was your quiet time today? Oh, I saw something I never saw before. Like that's the, that's the apex of spiritual growth. And that will happen. I, I don't want to bash that. But so often we need to remember things that God has already revealed to us that we need to live out fully. Well, this brings us to the last key, the third key in this passage, and that is to live with death in mind. So not only are we to establish deep roots in the truth, not only are we to remember the right things, but we are to live with death in mind. How often do you think about death? How often do you think about death? I know that's pretty direct. I know that's blunt, but we do need to talk about death for a moment. And, and not in a morbid sense, but in a, a perspective-shaping sense. I think this is one of the keys to godly living. It's to appropriately think about death. Again, Peter is in his 70s as he writes this letter. He says in verse 14, I know my time in this body, or that word could be translated as tent, this temporary residence, is coming to a close. Okay, so you think about his age. He's in his 70s. He's talking about death. And we think to ourselves, oh, yeah, it makes sense. Like the older you are, the more you do think and talk about death. The younger that you are, it's a rarity to actually think about death. You almost think that you're immortal, but that's not healthy. And that's what I want to press in upon in this moment. I I was reading about this pastor who was writing to other pastors, other preachers, and he was exhorting preachers to keep in mind that as you're preaching to your congregation, that your congregation is, of course, made up of different ages and life stages. And because of that, uh, they have different things going on in their minds that are kind of dominating their thinking. And he said this, that, uh, for example, someone in their 20s, they are dominated with thoughts such as, what makes me unique? How am I different from those around me? Where is my life headed? Right? If you're in your 20s, you tend to, to gravitate towards those kinds of questions. In your 30s, you tend to think a little bit differently because now there are marriages and mortgages. And so questions like, how will I get all these things done that I'm responsible for? And where did all that fun that I used to have go? When you get into your 40s, questions rattle around your mind like, why are my peers doing better than I am? You start to kind of compare, you kind of do these self-report cards, questions like maybe even why is my marriage less dazzling than it used to be? Nobody laugh at that. When you get in your 50s, different kinds of questions, questions like, do young people think I'm obsolete? And this question, why is my body becoming increasingly unreliable? When you get into your 60s, questions like this, why do my peers look older than me? Why do my friends talk so much about death? When you get into your 70s and on, questions surface like, how many years do I have left? 
When will I die and how will I die? What kind of legacy am I leaving behind? Questions of significance. Admittedly, the older you get, the more you think about death. But that's not wise to wait that long. In fact, it is much wiser to live with death in mind, no matter how old you are, no matter what life stage you are in. Psalm 90.12 says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. King Solomon, who's described as the wisest man in the Bible, wrote in Ecclesiastes, it's actually better to go to a funeral than to a party. He says this in uh, chapter 7, It is better to go to a house of mourning than go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Did you get that? Wisest man who ever lived basically says it's better for you to take a stroll around a graveyard than to go you know, to the lake house for a weekend. It'd be better for you, be wiser for you. And I think the reason for this is that thinking about the end creates urgency in the now. Thinking about the finish line crystallizes what's most important right now. And remembering that you're on the earth for a short period of time, that death is coming, it's coming sooner than any of us would think. Remembering that creates perspective and urgency. Right? It, was, it was James who says that your life is a vapor, that we're here today and we're gone tomorrow. Like in light of eternity, your life, your existence is very, very, very short. My question for us is, do you live like that? Like because that's true, do you live with urgency? Do you live with that kind of perspective? Like if you look at your time and your energy and your resources, what you're giving your life to, does it reflect the reality that you're living with death in mind? Peter is demonstrating it before us and it's a key to godly living. Think about it this way. And I'm not picking on, on attorneys by any means, but think about this for a moment. If, if you were to see a lawyer and their rate was, let's say, 300 an hour, all right? You, you go into their office, you sit down for a moment. I guarantee you that most of us, I know maybe a few of us would do this, but most of us would not spend the first half hour just talking about the weather, talking about the Colts, talking about uh, their, their childhood, and, and think to yourself, oh, no, I'll, I'll get to the more serious stuff, the back half of this meeting. The, the second half of the meeting, that, that's when we'll get serious. Most of us would not do that. Most of us would walk into that meeting and get down to it, right? We'd start talking about what really matters, why you're there. You would use your time wisely. Like the urgency would be palpable. And so thinking about your life in those terms, look, we cannot afford to give our life over to things that ultimately do not matter. Thinking to ourselves, oh, I'll get to those things that matter for each other. I'll get to that the back half of my life. The second half of my life, I'll get to those things. Look, you will not become tomorrow who you are not becoming today. That if you think that you're gonna be a type of person later on in your life, but you're not taking steps today to become that, 
you have no shot of becoming that kind of person. And I think the key here is understanding that death is coming for us all. Peter's sense of urgency was stimulated by a sense of his imminency. That every believer, death is coming. Every person, death is coming. Now, that shouldn't fill you with fear. That should fill you with a forever mindset of thinking, okay, what will last forever? What will matter in eternity? What will matter a hundred million years from now? Give your life to that. Don't waste your life by giving yourself over to things that won't matter for all of eternity. It's Francis Chan who said that our greatest fear should not be failure. Our greatest fear should be in excelling at things that ultimately do not matter. Charles Spurgeon, I can't go a sermon without quoting him, right? He says that living men are never more truly alive than when they are under a due sense that they are also dying men. When we realize that eternity is very near to us and we are consciously drawing near to the great judgment seat of Christ, then all our faculties are fully aroused and our whole being is bent on doing the master's work with the utmost vigor and earnestness. That's what Peter is demonstrating as he's writing his last words, calling us to pursue a life of godliness with urgency and with eternity in mind. Are you living with death in mind? And look, you don't need to know a lot of things to, to live a life of lasting impact. You really just need to know one thing, one great thing, and to give your life to it. Be willing to die for it. The people that have this lasting impact, they're not people who have mastered many things. They have been mastered by one thing, and it's the greatness and the beauty of Jesus. That's why we've been created, church. You've been created. I've been created to this one focus, this all-encompassing passion. It's to know Jesus and to make him known to others to put him on display as the greatest treasure in the universe. Look, I don't know who needs to hear this, but the goal of your life is not to work as hard as you can for 50 years so that you can retire and take it easy. That's not the goal of life. It's not to work as hard as you can so that you can spend the rest of your days golfing or buy that vacation home. No, the primary goal of your life is to know Jesus and to make him known. And, and if it means playing golf and buying that vacation, if that will help you do that, great. But if not, that's not your purpose in life. That's not what God has, that's not living with death in mind because you will get to the end of your life. And, and whether you're on your deathbed in your last few moments or you're standing before God, if you have given your life to knowing Jesus and making him known to others, you will not regret a second of it. And that's the, that's the question. Are you giving your life to knowing Jesus and making him known? I'm gonna close with this, um, I promise. But one of my favorite songs is Jesus Loves Me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I love singing that with my kids. We've got a book that goes through different variations and I sit there and I think, wow, what a powerful truth. Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? 
Because I always feel it? No. Because my circumstances echo that? Not always. But I know it because the Bible tells me so. And I love that. We, you know, if, if you grew up in the church, th- that was one of the earliest songs that you learned. It's one of the first songs my kids learned. It's such a powerful truth. What I find so interesting, I was reflecting on this. I did a funeral years ago, and they wanted that song to be sung at their funeral service. <laughs> I've, I've heard countless stories of people who are in the hospital. They've got a, a few hours, few, and they want that song sung. They want someone to sing those words. And I just thought that's so interesting to me that as kids, we learn this song, this powerful truth, and then we get to the end and we want to be reminded of, of that powerful truth. And yet, why is it that we spend the in-between so often forgetting that powerful truth? Look, there's nothing more powerful than that, that God loves you. The creator of the universe delights in you, so much so that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die for you, so you could be forgiven, made away, so you could spend all of eternity with him because he loves you. He loves you, and he demonstrated that, that while you were a sinner, Christ died for us. So do you want to live well? and die well, build your life around that truth by establishing yourself deeper in his word, by remembering the right things and living with death in mind. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Praise be to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you and we do praise you for your love for us. We thank you, O God, that you've not only made a way for our sins to be forgiven, But Lord, you've given us a vision for how to live this life, how to pursue godliness. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the authority of it. Thank you for its power. Lord, thank you that it's alive. I pray that you would give us a ferocious pursuit of it. Lord, show us our neediness for you, O God. Help us to be people who are establishing deeper roots in it by remembering the right truth. And Lord, by living with death in mind, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.